Says it's live. Love and secure hook. Kente. May your unfailing love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I will answer the one who taunts me. For I trust in your word. Do not snatch the word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings, and I will not be put to shame. For I delight in your commands, because I love them. I lift up my hands to your commands, which I love. I meditate on your decrees. Okay, good stuff. Good way to start. Let's see, we have, uh, it says it's live, Sergio says it's live, and we have um, Burke. It's not going to be here today. He's got sciatica. He's in just miserable pain. I know I had that for a couple years, and you can't stand up. You can't sit down. You can't lay down. You can't walk. It doesn't matter what you do. You cannot get comfortable when you got bad sciatica. So I feel bad for him, but he's going to get to the doctor next week, and we'll see if we can get him squared away. And uh, a note for everybody that watches the live stream. I'll say this now, and then uh, uh, I'll uh, let you know again on Sunday that Today and Sunday, we will be live stream on Facebook along with YouTube, and then this will be our very last Facebook live stream because I am leaving Facebook next week. I'm canceling my account, and we. so if you watch on Facebook, you're going to either have to get to YouTube or watch the videos later because, uh, I, as I said in my post today, I love the people, but I hate the platform. I'm not going to be a part of Zuckerberg's empire anymore, and so we will be leaving Facebook Probably next Wednesday will be the day. And so uh, just letting people know that in advance. And uh, I'll make a couple posts on Facebook next week. Appealing to people that definitely need Jesus. And after that, I am gone. Um, let's see here. We got this day in Christian history. This day in Christian history. February 11th today. Heaven is already rich with thine ingathered sheaves. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was the greatest preacher of his day. He served as a pastor at Metropolitan, I'm sorry, Metropolitan, I'm sorry, Tabernacle in London from the age of 19 until his death. For many years, he was plagued by the painful condition of gout, which he described this way. If you put your hand into a vice and let a man press as hard as he can, that is, or that is rheumatism. If he can got to press a little harder, that is gout. In the fall of 1891, while recovering from influenza along with his usual suffering from the gout, he and Miss Spurgeon traveled to Mentone, their favorite spot in sunny southern France. During three restful months together at the Hotel Beau Rivage, Spurgeon worked quietly on a New Testament commentary whenever he was able, and they enjoyed just being together in the soothing climate. At times, it even seemed he was improving. But then on January 31st, 1892, after a day of especially severe pain, Spurgeon entered his eternal rest at the age of only 57. On Monday evening, February 8th, Spurgeon's casket arrived at Metro Metropol how do you say that? Metropolitan Tabernacle and was placed below the preacher's platform where he lay in state for three days. In lieu of flowers, Miss Spurgeon had palm branches placed around the casket to signify victory. 
that Tuesday and Wednesday, 100,000 people filled by or filed by the coffin from 6.30 a.m. to 7 p.m. to pay their last respects. The mourners included members of parliament, the poor from slums, and everyone in between, all joining forces to bid farewell to the Prince of Preachers. Four memorial services were held Wednesday, two of which were for the general public. Ira D. Sankey, D.L. Moody's song leader, was a soloist. Following the funeral on Thursday, February 11, 1892, thousands of mourners lined the route of the funeral procession excuse me, to pay tribute to the man whose words God had used in their lives. Archibald Brown, pastor of East London Tabernacle, graduate of Spurgeon's College, and one of Charles Spurgeon's closest friends spoke these words at the graveside service. Beloved president, faithful pastor, prince of preachers, brother, beloved, dear Spurgeon, we bid thee not farewell, but only for a little while good night. Thou shalt rise soon at the first dawn of the resurrection day of the redeemed. It is not the good night ours to bid, but thine. It is we who linger in the darkness, thou are in God's own light. Our night, too, shall soon be passed, and with it all our weeping. Then, with thine, our songs shall greet the morning of a day that no cloud, that knows no cloud nor close, for there is no night there. Hard worker in the field, thy toil is ended. Straight has been the furrow thou hast plowed. No looking back has marred thy course. Harvests have followed thy patient sowing, and heaven is already rich with thine ingathered sheaves, and shall be still enriched through years yet lying in eternity. Champion of God, thy battle long and nobly fought is over. The sword which claved to thy hand is dropped at last. The palm branch takes its place. No longer does the helmet press thy brow or weary with its surging thoughts of battle. The victor's wreath from the great commander's hand has already proved thy full reward. Here for a little while shall rest thy precious dust. Then shall thy well-beloved come, and his voice that shall spring from thy couch on earth, fashioned like unto his body in glory. Then spirit, soul, and body shall be magnifying, or shall magnify thy Lord's redemption. Until then, beloved, sleep. We praise God for thee, and by the blood of the everlasting covenant, hope and expect to praise God with thee. Amen. And they ask, what do you think will be said about you at your funeral? It is now, while we are living, that we determine our legacy. Only by trusting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior can we live fruitful lives that will produce eternal results. John 9, 4 says, all of us must quickly carry out the task assigned us by the one who sent me because there is little time left before the night falls and all work comes to an end. And, uh, well, we'll go to prayer first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your glorious presence. <clears throat> we thank you for the precious word that you've given us that we get to share among each other. And we certainly pray for Burke, who has got uh, such terrible sciatica today, and we know that he's probably just uh, happy to be uh, just at home resting but even then i i dare say he's probably pretty miserable so we do lift him up and we also lift up anybody else that is in a bad way right now that has difficulties or trials or troubles in their heart or in their mind or in their soul and uh, we pray for anybody that's afflicted in their wallet that's uh facing trouble that way be with your people lord and help them to uh overcome these things and to uh, find the blessing whether it's in this temporal life or 
from your hand just to, to lift them up in their spirits so that uh, they will be built up in you and they can turn around and praise you for the relief they find. And Lord, we certainly ask that this class would be conducted in a way which would glorify you. And if anything is said that's not correct, that it would be alerted to the people that, uh, that hear it. And uh, so they would not be led astray by something which is incorrect. Lord, we pray these things to your glory, and we certainly pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I was going to bring that up today anyway, because, uh, uh, you know, I always say you never know when you're going to have your last day, and uh, you don't know what's coming, and, uh, uh, you you know, you go on vacation, and you expect to come home from vacation, or if you go uh, to the store, you expect to come home from the store. You and go to trim a tree. if you're trimming a tree, you would expect that you wouldn't bounce off the ladder and destroy yourself. But um, this week, as we were uh, as we were uh, uh, doing our lives, somebody here, I think he was 74 years old, was out on the key riding on his bicycle, and he got hit by one of the trolleys, and that's the end of him. And so he didn't expect to get on his bike and go die that day. Okay, and that's the point: is that uh, uh, you know everybody's worried about dying from COVID. And the fact is, they say, oh, I get my vaccine, I'll be spared. Or, you know, you're not protecting me because you're not wearing a mask and uh, I need to be protected. Well, I hate to tell you, the fact is, you're going to die. It's not, you know, oh, I didn't get COVID and so I'm safe. It doesn't matter if you get COVID or if you get run over, you're still going to be dead. And if nothing else, your life is going to come to an end from being old and just falling apart. So uh, people need to be ready for this. This is one of those things that we just too... Uh, casually brush aside and think, oh, tomorrow's coming. And we don't know that even 15 minutes from now is coming. So please be ready. Please uh, understand it, especially if you're watching this video and you're not sure about Jesus, you need to be sure about Jesus because there is no other way to be reconciled to God but through Jesus. And that's the point of us having this Bible class. And if we don't convey that fact in this class or during the church on Sunday, then we're not doing our job because this is what it's about. I mean, we're talking about doctrine, and we're talking about proper doctrine in the class, but the main point of proper doctrine is to be ready to meet your maker. And so there you go with that. And, and with, Charlie, where was that? Where did that happen? Right at Stickney Point and Midnight Pass. Right yeah, right there. And so apparently they saw all the cops. They were just cops lined up all the way. So, uh, you know, when somebody dies, they don't have much else to do in Sarasota because, uh, you know, people aren't dying from COVID here. So... Uh, they got to line up and do it somewhere else, yeah, but uh, you haven't read the obituary yeah. analysis yet. Uh, the what? He will have died from COVID. The, uh, no, I know. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He he will he will be he will definitely be listed as a COVID death. But uh, you know, I I have two family members. Well, one to be family member and another family member that work at Sarasota uh, Memorial Hospital, and I know what the numbers are there, and they are very low at Sarasota Memorial Hospital. And not only that, oh yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Anyway, we've got to go on. It is, um, uh, we're in sixth floor, so you can start wherever you want. Let me go right to the beginning of the chapter. Okay. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burden, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. For, but let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Oh, good. Okay, so there we go. Six four. We're almost to the end of this chapter. I doubt if we'll finish today, but uh, 
it just it's what a marvelous book. I've just enjoyed it so much. Uh, Paul's words here are an admonition to not make evaluations about our own life and conduct in comparison to others. Here we go. Let me read it again. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Okay, so we just read that thing about Spurgeon, and it's a good thing to look back on is that, you know, Spurgeon, the question they asked is he died and he received his reward from the earthly side in his burial and his remembrance. And their question was, how are you going to be remembered? And what are you going to do? And obviously, there's another side to that as well. You're going to have a different reward when you get onto the other side and you face Christ. And whatever Spurgeon's rewards are, they are set already. His, his life is done and it's over. And whatever he did for the Lord will be evaluated based on that. And that will come down to uh, more, more than one thing. But the main thing will come down for every single person is what faith did you exercise? Okay, obviously doctrine will come in because if somebody is a bad teacher, he can have all the faith in the world and be a crummy teacher and he will lose rewards for that. But the main thing that you will be judged on in your life and interactions, I am absolutely certain of this, is faith. Did you do this in faith? Did you talk to that person in faith? Did you conduct your life in faith as far as your death, as far as your sickness, as far as anything like that? That will be a main source of rewards and losses. Things like rewards for how you uh, taught, how you, you know, did things, that'll be a separate category. I'm, I, I'm certain of it because faith is what anybody can exercise. A person that's in a bed that is, uh, has, you know, a quadriplegic and can't do anything else can still have faith. They can still exercise that. And when the Lord sees that in a person and that's all they can do, they will get their reward for it. So um, it was a good question that they put in that uh, daily or yeah that daily devotional to kind of set us off with what we're saying here when we see another fall and say i've never done that we tend to get smug and self-confident rather he exhorts us to each examine his own work we are to use a set standard of who we are which does not include others there is no grading on a bell curve there is no such thing like that there is a standard that we will be evaluated on, and that standard is Christ. And he has revealed to us what he expects of us in his word. So there you go with that. Our standard should then be that which comes from God, which is Scripture. Christ is the embodiment of Scripture. He is the one that can judge us based on Scripture, but we are the ones that live our lives in accord or not in accord with Scripture. As God is the ultimate standard, and his word has been given to us for the rule and guide of our conduct then we can examine ourselves impartially in relation to it. The word examine gives the idea of prove by testing. If we have gold, we prove it by melting it down and checking for impurities. Okay, when the impurities are taken away, we have proved the purity of gold. Okay, here's an example of that. When I went up to mine gold in Alaska, I think it was 1998 maybe, somewhere around there, and I did that for a whole summer, and the river that I worked at, they already knew it would still, any of the gold that I found would still have to be assayed. You know, they, they can't just take it for granted because there may be some impurities, but the general vein that ran through that river that went into that river was like 98% pure. It was very high quality. And then they had, maybe it was a little less than that, but they had other things like platinum and, you know, some other metals in there, but it was a very good gold that came out of that river. But from there, it's still not pure. And so they 
prove it by testing. They melt it down. They get anything that isn't gold out of there. They can take the other precious metals and separate them. But uh, uh, when it's done, if you go to the U.S. Mint and you get gold that's been minted at the U.S. Mint, it is going to be stamped something like 99.99% purity. They can never guarantee that it's 100%, but that's the way they do it. And it has to go through fire in order to do that. You've got to heat up the metal in order to purify it. And so that's the example that he's giving us. We have to test ourselves. When we prove ourselves against the word of God, the refining process, and then remove the impurities it identifies, then we will have, as Paul says, rejoicing in ourselves alone. We will be able to say, I have aligned my life and my actions with the true standard which God has given us, which is above all others. This is where our sure rejoicing or glorying will lie. Now, once again, it talks about uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you're being refined as silver, silver purified seven times over. And the idea there is that you, uh, just like I said with the gold, you take it and you purify it and you heat it up and off comes any slag on the top. It comes up and they do it and then they heat it again and you might get a little more. And if you do it seven times, the idea is that it is going to be very, very pure silver. And, you know, it's kind of a cliche, but if you haven't heard it, it you get the point is that the Lord is taking you and he's refining you through his word. And what the ultimate goal is, when you have silver that is not pure and you look at it, what does it look like? grayish yeah it's just it's it's not great and then the shinier the more pure it gets it's going to become like a mirror. like a mirror and the Lord can look at that and say all I see is myself in there and that's the point of being refined you're going through the heat and the testing to be purified and in the end the Lord will see himself in you that's the idea but um, having said that uh, just so that you know this is that when you buy a mirror at the store the back of that mirror is silver it's silver it's pure silver and that's how they make mirrors so that when you look in a mirror and you're seeing yourself that's what you're actually looking at is silver it's glass in front of a very light coat of silver and if you want to know that go to how it's made on youtube they do you know everything how's the hamburger made or whatever they tell you everything in the world about how it's made and they will just type in how it's made mirrors and it's a really interesting process it's amazing how they do it but there you go that's why you know mirrors are a little more expensive than they otherwise would be is because you know one they're breakable and so they got to take that into a, account and you know you got to do the glass you got to do that but you also have to have silver in there and so it adds to the expense of the process but there you go okay so um yeah when we prove ourselves against the word of god and remove the impurities i already read that uh, this is where our sure rejoicing or glorying will lie. In testing ourselves against another, there will always be fault. Always. Because other people are faulted, just like we are. Every one of us is faulty. If we want to uh, make ourselves, our, our, uh, you know, uh, align ourselves with the perfection of Arnold Schwarzenegger, we've got a very low standard. I don't care how big he is as a, or was as a human being, he's a human being. He's fallible. He's full of all kinds of error. And if you just want to have a big body like him, in a few years, you're going to be like he is now. You're going to be all worn out and you're going to be flabby and there's nothing you can do about it if that is your goal. And the same thing is with any person that we idolize, whether it's in sports or whether it's in, you know, politics, heaven forbid, um, or any other thing. If that is where we are setting our standard, we're not doing a very good job of it, okay? No matter how many times we look better than those around us, 
we can never truly know how secure we are against the ultimate standard. But when we prove ourselves in relation to Christ and his word, we can make positive corrections towards that which is pleasing to God. And that's why we've got the word. That's why the Lord has given it to us. He's given it to us to, us to show us the state that we were in, what he did about it throughout history in order to correct that, what he's going to do about it when the world rejects him finally after the rapture of the church. But in the meantime, he's given it to us so that we can improve ourselves in order to meet that judgment without a lot of sadness when we do, because we are going to meet that judgment. Just like we said about dying, after dying, it's appointed for man to die and then the judgment, okay? And so there's no escaping it. Make the best of what you can today. Live your life for the Lord. Learn doctrine. Like I said, you know, doctrine is not an end in and of itself. I know uh, professors at seminaries that have all the doctrine in the world, and they are not really great Christians, okay? And surprise, surprise, just because somebody, and I find myself, I got to tell you what, I find myself when I'm sitting there and I'm evaluating something, and I have to say this to myself throughout the week, this is not an end in itself. And I have to keep reminding myself that it's the Lord. He is the purpose of everything we're doing. And if we forget that, then it all becomes rote. It becomes, I'm better than you at my doctrine. I'm going to show you where you're wrong. And it, you tend to lose your heart in that. And it's, it's hard not to, I'm telling you, because when you're all day long answering questions about the Bible or when people are, you know, telling you something that's obviously incorrect and you go back to them and, you know, it, it, it's hard and you find yourself losing sight of the true purpose of what you're doing, which is Jesus. You know, you give them the right instruction. Instruction. If they don't want that, then what you have to do is you just have to give it to them a second time. And if they keep badgering you about it, the Bible says have nothing more to do with them. Okay, that's just what you're to do. But in the meantime, you got to at least try and you got to do it with a sense of, of being helpful. Um, you know, I, I do have, I, I, I won't say who it was, but somebody sent me a, a, a video today about... Uh, you know, the coming rapture and how a guy's picked it. It's like a 2028 or something. And I, I went back to him. He said, it's a short video. And I, I, I know you're busy and I don't want, I don't like watching videos. People send me videos all the time and I don't like watching videos. But I will say that this morning, I typed the Revelation commentaries 11 days in advance or 10 days in advance. And they're posted on the 11th day. Just this morning, I typed at the very bottom in my life application that if somebody is out there predicting the date of the rapture, they are violating scripture and they should not be listened to. And what I did is I said, friend, and I said, this is what I typed this morning. I'm not going to change my policy now that you've sent me this. I'm not going to watch this video. And I said, I'm not being bullheaded with you about it, but I am not going to go down that path. Jesus said that we are not going to know the times and the seasons. He said it. I'm going to stick with it. I'm not going to get into watching videos that predict things like that. And so, and it's just, you know, it's more relieving when somebody uh, asks you a question and you've already typed a commentary on it. It's so easy to say, here, read this. <laughs> I got to tell you, I love doing Bible commentaries because my life gets a little easier every day as I do. I've already answered that one. Here you go. But uh, in the meantime, then we have the classes. And this is where it becomes fun is because you can do the class and you can get out of your head what you typed years ago. And it's like your own refresher. Um, okay, so having said that, life application. Without scripture, we truly are ships without rudders. We are cast about in a raging sea of confusion. But when we align ourselves according to the true manual for mankind, 
We find purpose and direction for our wayward souls. Keep your nose in scripture. But with the caveat that I just said, when you keep your nose in scripture, make sure that you do it basing it on an evaluation of Jesus. That's the main thing. If you're not including Jesus in your scripture reading and in what you're thinking about in your scripture reading, you are coming to an error in your thinking. Listen, Jews read the Old Testament all day long, okay? And they are no closer to God than they were 2,000 years ago if they don't know Jesus, okay? So all the doctrine in the world is good. Don't get me wrong. It's That's why we do this. But if it's not done with you thinking about how does this make me more like Jesus or more pleasing to Jesus, you're wasting your time, okay? 6-5. For each one shall bear his own load. Yeah, exactly. Each I one shall bear it. Yeah, are you? Should be. I'm, I'm reading that book. Oh, you're you. Well, then what, well, why don't I just read this then? Well, then you go right ahead. Uh, if you're not going to read the, the why am I? I don't have my glasses. Oh, okay. I've got another it's, pair it's somewhere. With okay, I, I like to have a second translation because right, it, no, if you can't no, do it, it's okay. No, no. But it really makes life better because we can compare why one is okay. right or wrong. But that's okay. No, no, um, okay, no, six. No, no. Oh, are you going to read it? No. Can you read? As long as we have a different... Each one should carry his own load. Okay, it's very close on that one. It's not enough words where you can really do it. Yeah, as long as we have a different version, I like that because then we can compare why it's different. Anyway, um, here we have Paul explaining the previous verse, which told us that each person should examine his own work. He said that then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. The explanation is that in this verse, each one shall bear his own load. In this, he uses a different word than he used in verse 2 for burden. In verse 2, it was baros, a weight or a burden. Figuratively, this is helps word studies, a real substance, what has value, what has significance. For example, it carries personal and eternal significance. Okay. In this verse, he uses the word forcion, a burden, the freight of a ship. Properly, a burden which must be carried by the individual. For example, as something personal, and hence it is not transferable, i.e. it cannot be shifted to someone else. Okay, so you've got two different types of burdens. Something I carry and I can shift to somebody else, or it's a burden that I alone carry, basically. Okay, the verb in verse 2 is in the present imperative. You shall surely do this now. The verb in this verse is future indicative. You shall bear. The latter is the antithesis of the former. While the first is given for each of us to sympathize with others in their troubles, the second is given to show that we each will answer to God for the loads that we have carried. We cannot transfer our load to another for judgment, but we can take on the burden of those around us for their relief. Everybody see the difference? What we have been given, and you know, uh, one of my friends, he's asking for help. How do I evangelize people? How do I answer the questions that they invariably come up with? And I said, well, evangelizing is like anything else. I'm sorry, you're just going to have to do it. Jim knows that. You go out to the projects, and when you start out there, and Tom puts you on the spot and says, would you pray for the people today? And all these words come out all wrong. And after a month or so, they're coming out beautifully. It, it takes practice to be able to pray properly for people, okay? Even if you hear somebody pray for 10 times out in the projects, the first time you do it, 
you're go it's going to be difficult, okay? Evangelizing is basically the same thing. You can't just say, okay, I've read this in a book and now I'm gonna go out and do it. It doesn't work that way. You have to be able to see their eyes, see their body mov movements, Everything about what you do with them is just like any other interaction. You have to be able to do it a couple times in order to understand the process, okay? And then he said, his second part was, what about the questions I get? And the questions that he gave were the ones that we all have faced at one time or another if we talked to somebody about Jesus. Like, oh, um, why does God let babies die? Why, you know, why, why this and why that? And, uh, you know, or I'm, I'm a good guy. God will judge me based on, you know, what I've done in my life. Oh. God forbid there. Okay, but uh, uh, so I answered his questions and every single question that I answered him, I said, put it back on the person because they are projecting. All they're doing is they're trying to get away from what you're presenting to them and they're, they're projecting. And so if they say, you know, I'm a good person and say, so you're the standard? You're the standard by which God has got to judge everybody else? Is that what you're saying? I said, because Hitler certainly didn't think I'm the worst person in the world. Right? Does anybody think that Hitler thought I'm the worst person in the world? He thought he was a great guy and he was doing something great. Even if he was the most twisted person on the planet, he didn't think he was. Okay? And so Hitler's got the same thought that that guy has. I'm, good. I'm okay. God will be happy with me. I got rid of all these people. Right? So he's saying, I'm the standard. Or you're saying, I'm the standard. Well, you got to put that back on him and say, is that what you're saying then? Because he thinks the same thing. But you don't think he is and he thinks you aren't. So who is the standard? It's the same thing with anything. Put it back on them to get them to think through why their thinking is incorrect, okay? And that includes bearing other burdens or helping other people, just what Paul is speaking about here, okay? Uh, you are mad that God doesn't let you do certain things. His word says you can't do this and that, okay? Well, that's so that you don't harm yourself, right? Okay, well, suppose you want to go out in a boat and the boat, uh, uh, you want to go skiing behind a boat. And God says, you can't do that because you might get hurt. Well, how fair is that? Why can't I go on the boat? I know that I'm going to be okay out there. Well, it's the same thing with what you're saying, this particular example you've given me. At what point do you say, I'm not accountable for my actions? And the Lord is giving you in his word boundaries for your actions. And he's saying, this will keep you from this harm, okay? Put it back on them. Let them think through their situation. Are, do you have free will or do you not have free will? Okay. Is a baby dying something that God isn't aware of? Does he not know that he created that baby? Was there a purpose possibly that you don't know about? Do you know why certain things happen and certain things don't? Let them think it through. Okay. And the same goes for with what Paul is saying right here. He said, uh, let each one examine his own work and he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another for each one shall bear his own load. Okay, there are certain things in your life that you have to carry. And if you're mad at God and say, well, why did God create me with a, a, you know, a clubbed foot or, a, you know, I'm missing my right arm or something. Listen, you have to carry your own load. This is what the Lord created you as and you have to accept it. And there are people that have the exact same condition that you have that love the Lord Jesus and that are serving him with that affliction. And you're not. And so you're blaming God for something they're not blaming him. Once again, place it back on them. This is what Paul is saying here as well. He's saying you have to bear your own load. And people have to understand that God has given us restrictions for our good. 
okay? He's not here to make all of our choices, though. When something bad does happen to you, it's because this is what happens in a life with free will. You go out on a boat and you get run over, you can't blame God for that because otherwise you'd blame God for not letting you go on the boat in the first place. Whatever you do, just remember you have to bear your own load. And if somebody is angry at that precept, then reason with them. But once again, these are things that you have to learn to be able to say to people when they bring it up to you. It can't be taught. You can think about it, but once you get there to that position, everybody responds differently to the gospel. Every single person. I've talked to people that have literally started, oh yeah, I'll listen, and they've backed up five feet away by the time I'm done two minutes later. Literally backed up because they're scared of what they're hearing. And you get some people whose eyes twitch a lot. You know that they're very nervous about what they're hearing. Or you see people that'll just start crying right in front of you and they realize that they need Jesus. Everybody responds differently and there's no way to teach that to people. And so even in witnessing, you have to bear your own load. This is something that God has placed on you that if you've gotten a burden in your heart to talk to somebody about Jesus, you are the one that's gonna have to do it even with your own failings. There's no perfect way of witnessing, but there is a perfect way of evangelizing. And the perfect way of evangelizing is by using this book here and what it says. As long as you use this contents, then you've done your job and the onus is on the person to respond what God has already given you, okay? But you have to bear your own load. Okay, we'll go on from there. Let's see here. Where was I? We're in verse 6-5 and, um, uh, yeah, okay, we can't transfer it to others. Uh, life application. If we are willing to take on the burdens of those around us, then our own loads will be lessened on that great day when the actions of our lives are presented before the Lord. Do we want the light burden of assisting others now, or do we want the heavy burden we must carry to the Bema seat of Christ? Choose wisely. Okay? 6-6. Six, six. Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Oh, see, and that isn't the same. I, I, I thought you were going to read off no, that again. No. Oh, wow. And you, did it, you didn't even squint. Okay. And it's, it's, it's close, but it's not the same. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Instructor who teaches. Same thing, just differently worded. This is a tithing hole in the boat. Well, this is the one that I always say. There are two precepts in the New Testament. Only two that you can levy on a, a believer concerning uh uh, and this is one I used in last Sunday's sermon. You know, I said, if it says, let everyone share uh, who is taught the word share in all good things. And I made the joke that if you make cookies, be sure to share some with me. Okay. But uh, this, this is one of the verses. Does that prescribe anything other than, I mean, it tells you to do this thing, but it doesn't prescribe an amount. No, it doesn't prescribe what, you know, you're doing something. What does that mean? Because you're going to do something good for your husband or your wife or your children that you will never do for your pastor. So obviously it doesn't include that. Okay. What does that mean? It, Paul leaves it completely open. He just says, if you uh, read it again, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. What does that mean? That's up to you, but it is a prescription. That's Paul's writing there. The other one the only other thing that you're going to find in the New Testament epistles that tell us what to do as far as giving, it's not where it says save up money on Monday, the first day of the week, because Paul is explicitly telling the Corinthians that, and it was to take a gift that they had promised down to Jerusalem, okay? So it is Paul telling the people to do something, and he's saying do it in a set way, but it's because they had made a vow to do that thing. Get ready, and we're going to do it, okay? The second verse about sharing with people as far as in the ministry is let 
a person give Freely. Cheerfully. 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 Okay. In other words, if you can't give because you can't afford it, why would somebody expect you to give? Why would they do that? You got somebody in the church that can't afford to feed their own kids and you're saying you need to give in the plate this week? That's insane. That's violating scripture because Paul says give cheerfully. If a person can't give cheerfully, don't give at all. And that's it. Those are your two verses in the New Testament that tell you what to do with what you have of your own. Okay, <clears throat> I'll read it now and we'll go on. I get angry about this because I've sat in churches where they literally will pass the plate three times during the service. And they, they, they beat things over people's head. They were effective, especially, you remember Temple Baptist. I don't know if they're even open anymore, but they were very effective in missions. I got to tell you that. They supported a lot of missionaries in a small little church. But it wasn't the only thing that they, they you know, I mean, they really beat tithing over people's heads. And it was just so unbiblical. Anyway, um, there's a conjunction at the beginning of this verse in the Greek, de, or but, which has not been translated by the New King James Version. Some other versions include it, such as the BSB, which says, however, the one who receives instruction in the word must share in all good things with his instructor. That's the Berean Study Bible. Anyway, the conjunction is not superfluous, but is given as an exception to the previous verse, which said, for each one shall bear his own load. Paul is admonished that all will bear their own load. But he doesn't intend that this means we should think of, we shouldn't think of the needs of others and especially concerning the needs of ministers. Once again, when I typed this, I probably was not in the ministry. So I'm not trying to push this on anybody. It's just an axiom that Paul says this and that's what he's talking about. In their case, talking about the ministry, Paul highlights an exception. Let him who is taught the word includes any who receive instruction from a minister of the word. If they do, they are included in this verse. For them, they are to share in all good things with him who teaches. Uh, where was I? In other words, what their lives are blessed with should become the same things that the minister of the word is blessed with. If the recipient of the word is blessed with grain, they should share their grain with the instructor. If they are blessed with oranges, they should also share their oranges. If their income is of money, then they should be willing to share of that income with their minister. I put oranges yesterday because, or was it two days ago, it was very foggy. And I uh, uh, always take a sunrise photo. I do it every single day and I post it on Facebook, but it was too foggy for that. And so I went outside and I took a picture of the orange tree in our backyard. And it's a native Florida orange tree. If anybody's ever eaten a native Florida orange, I posted with it. I said, these are now ripe. I said, the recommended uh, dosage of sugar is one pound of sugar for every ounce of juice. They're so bitter. You can't eat them. They're, they're, they're terrible. And they got thorns this long. So even if you tried to pick them, you'd be dead if you did. But it's funny that we're talking about oranges here when I saw those yesterday, because Hedico, my wife will go out and she will pick those and she will eat them. And I'm telling you, I can't even get them in my mouth. They're so bad. But she, she loves her little oranges every year. And so I'll have to go over and pick them. But we'll go on now. Um, yeah, okay. They should be willing to share of their income with their minister. This is because the minister is fulfilling a job which also takes of his time, his efforts, and which is a part of his devotion to God. Having explained this, Vincent's Word Studies disagrees that this verse is speaking of, a, of blessing a minister with temporal blessings, 
which the student provides to the minister. Rather, his analysis says that the disciple should make common cause with the teacher in everything that is morally good and promotes salvation. The introduction at this point of the relationship of disciple and teacher may be explained by the fact that this relation in the Galatian community had been disturbed by the efforts of the Judaizing teachers, notably in the case of Paul himself. And this disturbance could not but interfere with their common moral effort and life. In other words, Vincent deems this verse as one of participation in the same conduct as the teacher of the word, rather than one of giving to a minister of the word. He's the only one that I've read that came to that conclusion. If this is so, then the one so participating is susceptible to being led down the primrose path. One goes to an instructor for instruction. Does everybody see my logic on this? If what Vincent is saying is correct, and you're supposed to share in the common good with your instructor, and he's a bad instructor, then you're sharing in what is bad, okay? Then one goes to an instructor for instruction. If the instructor provides faulty instruction, then the one participating in that faulty instruction only has the faulty instruction of the instructor to be instructed by. To share in all good things with him who teaches would then require discernment and follow-up study by the one being taught, which is something that is very rare. I know the people in this church do that. You go home and you study what you've been taught, and you'll even send me emails and say, what were you talking about there, or what do you think about this here? I know that's the case. A lot of people study after doing these studies, but most people do not, and so it's very hard to accept Vincent's analysis on that and, and like I said, I don't know anybody else that came to that conclusion that he did. So I'd be careful with that. This analysis actually fits with the tenor of the coming verses quite well, though, and is not to be discarded, though it is a minority opinion. Does everybody understand before I go on what Vincent was saying? He's saying, it's not saying share in your good things with your instructor. It's to share in the good things of the instructor in your own life. He's taking it and turning it around on itself. And he's saying this is because he's speaking to a group of Galatians that weren't doing that, and it was harming him. But if you were to use that same logic with the Judaizers who came in there to pull him away from Paul, then they're doing the right thing by following the Judaizers. So it's not something that I would personally agree with. But as I said, it does seem to follow in what it says later in this chapter. So I'm not going to discard it. I wanted to give that to you to think about, but it is a very minority opinion. Life application. The first analysis of this verse, that of caring for one's minister, is something which is certainly appropriate to do. However, the second analysis is given so that a contrasting yet valid view can be considered. Always study to show yourself approved after listening to the instruction of the instructor. Sound doctrine does not end with his instruction. It only begins there, and that's why I say week after week, it's time for you to go home and you to check out what you have been taught, because if I'm wrong and you're relying on me, then your doctrine is faulty, okay? So sound doctrine does not end with his instruction. It only begins there. Okay, 6-7. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Okay, this one says, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. 
Okay, 6-7. The previous verse spoke of sharing in all good things with him who teaches. As noted, Vincent's word study says that this is speaking of students sharing in the sound teachings of instructors and not getting swayed by false doctrines. Okay, Paul now directs his thought to the attitude of the heart saying, do not be deceived. The words are especially important and are intended to call out for the reader to pay heed. As Albert Barnes notes, the sources of the danger were the corruption of their own hearts, the difficulty of knowing their true character, the instructions of the false teachers, and so on. Paul was asking them to not rely simply on the evaluation made by the heart, which is so wicked that it ranks among the greatest of deceivers. That's what Jeremiah says. The heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? In doing so, they would be liable to mocking God, and God is not mocked. The verb here literally indicates sneering with the nostrils, flaring in contempt. We have been given the word of life in the explanation of what Jesus did. In turning back to the law for our justification, it is an act comparable to mocking God. That's why I speak so heavily against it and why I love the book of Galatians. And I'm sorry that it's such a short book and it's ending so quickly because it is absolutely true what I just read, whether you know it's part of the Bible or not. It's an analysis of the Bible, which is correct, is that turning back to the law, we see it. The typology is even found in Moses. I mean, he did not cross the Jordan, folks. All the way back in the Old Testament, the typology, and all through the prophets, all the way through, what does it say? And I think it's Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then Jesus repeats that, and you see it probably four or five times in the Old Testament and in the New. Okay, And what does the law require? Sacrifice. It requires it. And yet the Lord says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Okay? The whole point is that going back to the law itself is telling you that it is incapable of taking care of the things of the heart. It's incapable of it. It's incapable of bringing a person to a righteous state before God. It is impossible. And for us to go back and say, well, I'm going to do what these Judaizers are doing and I'm going to ignore the book of Galatians is a self-condemning act. That's exactly what it is. We'll go back. It says, the verb here literally indicates sneering with the nostrils flaring in contempt. We have been given the word of life in the explanation of what Jesus did. He fulfilled the law so that we don't have to. In turning back to the law for our justification, it is an act comparable to mocking God. And so we have a choice as to whether we will follow such false teachers who insist on living by deeds of the law, or we will follow the truth of the word, which says that our justification comes solely by the merits of Jesus Christ, solely. And that's where there's a great division, even within the church itself, and I'm not talking about the Hebrew Roots movement, I'm talking about like Roman Catholicism. Are we justified solely by the merits of Christ, or do our works cooperate with what Christ has done? And the canons at Trent, there's 11 of them that would actually uh, contradict scripture, at least 11 of them. I've got them right over here if you want to see them later, okay? Nine of them would call Paul anathema, and two of them would call Jesus anathema, okay? They clearly contradict. They don't just, you know, twist the word of God. They're not a mis-evaluation of the word of God. They completely contradict the word of God, and they say that our works must cooperate in our justification with the works of Christ, okay? I'm sorry. That's, I had this conversation with somebody just yesterday. They said, I 
am of the firm belief, I've said it before and I'll say it again, is that the Catholic Church stopped being a Christian church in 1546 at the Council of Trent. That does not mean that there aren't Christians in the Catholic Church, okay? That's not, I'm not saying that, I've never said that. There are people that are in the Catholic Church that are saved, okay? There are actually priests and preachers in the Catholic Church that are disliked by the Catholic Church because they, all they do is preach Jesus. That's right. And they're not liked for that, but they can't get rid of them because they always have big congregations full of people that love Jesus. So it's, it's a problem for them. But their, their canons in the Council of Trent deem them as a church not Christian. And that's all there is to it. If you read those and you adhere to those, then you are not Christian. Or you may be a Christian who is now turned away from the Lord and you're the one that's going to suffer for that. But it's just something we have to remember there is that this isn't just something that happens with people going under the law, Hebrew roots, and I'm going to do this happens even within the church itself. And you got to be careful when you go to a new denomination to find out what they actually believe, not just what they say, but what they actually believe. Because when that preacher dies and somebody else comes in and he preaches what the denomination teaches, then you're going to be led astray by that person. Okay. To show us that we cannot have it both ways, Paul, he says, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. This is a truth which he conveyed in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 as well. Let me take you there, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 9 and 6. He says, uh, I'll start in 5. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not of as a grudging ob obligation. That's what I was talking about earlier, the gift that they had promised to make for the saints in Jerusalem, and Paul is telling them how to get that gift ready. So that cannot be used as a prescription of what to do in the church on the first day of the week. I think I said Monday, but the first day of the week is Sunday. Um, if I said Monday earlier, I didn't mean that. Anyway, verse 6, but I say this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And if you don't understand that, if you think you're going to be rich by giving to your church, go back and watch the uh, 2 Corinthians Bible study on that verse or read the commentary and you'll find out that's not exactly what Paul is saying. Because people will use that in churches and say, if you give to your church, you're going to reap a large, yeah, sow a seed and you're going to, it doesn't work that way. And if you're doing it for that reason, guess what? You're doing it for the wrong reason and you will get no reward for it. Okay, if anybody ever tells you that by sending money to them, you will be blessed, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to be poorer and they're going to be richer. That's the only thing that's going to happen. You're not going to get anything out of it. Okay, so um, six, where was I now? Um, yeah, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Paul is using a material concept to make a spiritual application. If a farmer sows a great deal of good seed, he will generally reap a great harvest. Of course, there are other things that come into play. Is the soil good? Is it being watered and all of that? But we're just saying if it's good seed and he puts a lot of it in the ground and the, the things are done properly, you're going to get a good harvest, okay? If you want to see that, go back and look at, um, what's his name, uh, Isaac. Yeah, Isaac in the Old Testament. It says he sowed and reaped a hundredfold. Ooh, okay, so that's what it's speaking of. If he only sows a little, or if he sows bad seed, then he will reap sparingly. Okay, the other things may be beyond his control. If the Lord withholds the rain, you're not going to get any grain, etc. But there are certain things that you must do in order to get the process going. Okay, the same is true with spiritual matters. If a person teaches as the Judaizers taught, 
with their false doctrines, there will be a harvest of bad doctrine. If a person teaches the word of the apostles, today it is the Holy Bible, which records their words, which they wrote down for us, there will be a harvest of sound doctrine. The word that in that he will also reap is emphatic in the Greek. It is that and nothing else. Good doctrine for life cannot be reaped if bad doctrine is sown into it. If Judaizers come into the church and start Judaizing, you're going to have bad doctrine. Hebrew Roots Movement is what I'm talking about today, or, you know, Seventh-day Adventist. If somebody comes in and he's, you know, been a Seventh-day Adventist all his life, and he decides to come in and start telling people in the congregation that you need to worship on a Saturday, and you're going to reap a bad harvest if you listen to that person. Okay, that's just the way it is. There's no way around it. If you are going to allow bad in to your doctrine, then you will reap bad out of it, okay? And sound doctrine will be reaped when sound doctrine is sown. Okay, now I'm saying this, and obviously if I'm saying this, then it implies that I'm giving you good, good doctrine and you're gonna sow good doctrine, okay? That's what it implies because I'm the teacher and you're listening. That's why I say you need to go and check out what I've said and you need to think about what I've said because I could be wrong. I'm just telling you the way that I read this book, the way that I've analyzed it at four o'clock in the morning when I typed up, uh, let's see here, um, Galatians 6 verse 7 years and years ago, okay? And this is what I believe is correct. I would not teach it if I believed it was incorrect. But at the same time, it does not mean I'm right. So I'm going to read that to you again so that you can see this. Uh, good doctrine for life cannot be reaped if bad doctrine is sown into it. And sound doctrine will be reaped when sound doctrine is sown. In the end, it is a sober choice, but one which God is carefully watching over as the day of judgment draws near. Life application. Garbage in, garbage out. If we fill our lives with those who teach false doctrine, we will be filled with false doctrine. God is not mocked. Let us, fill our, let us not fill ourselves with garbage. Cling to the cross of Jesus Christ and to that alone for your right standing with God. 6-8. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from that from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Okay, completely different. It says the same thing, but completely different. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. You can think of your flesh corrupting, okay? But he who sows to the spirit will reap of the will of the spirit reap everlasting life. It says the same thing, it's just completely different. That's why I like having two versions is because we can get a different feel even if the same thing is conveyed, one may be a little easier for somebody to understand or there may actually be a dis we've seen that many times there's this discrepancy between the two. Um, let's see here, that was 6-8. Paul gave the contrasting means of sowing either in the flesh or in the spirit in previous verses. In 5, 19 through 21, he listed the works of the flesh. We did that two weeks ago. He then contrasted those with the fruits of the spirit in verses 22 and 23. Now we did that three weeks ago and then two weeks ago, I think. The fruit. The fruit, fruit singular, thank you. He, I, I, I put fruits and it is fruit. It's in the singular in the Greek. Thank you. Um, where are we? Um, I'm glad you said that because it is the fruit of the Spirit. Um, I still can't find it. Yes, okay. Um, no, yes. Okay, in its words here, he shows the difference in effort wrought between the carnal man 
and the spiritual man by using the same terminology of sowing and reaping. Though a carnal, unregenerate man can only sow to his flesh, a saved believer can sow either to the flesh or to the spirit. Everybody got that? This is something that I was talking to my friends. I won't say who they are, but they were talking about one of their friends who was stuck in the thought of the ending of, I think it's the book of uh, Ephesians, where Paul lists certain things, and he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, and it also says it elsewhere as well. But um, right here, uh, Galatians 5, it says, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But in the passage that they were referring to, Paul goes on and he says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were whatever. I'm I'm misquoting it now, but he told them that they had been cleansed of those things. Now they can still do those things. And we know they can still do those things as believers because 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says that they can do those things. They can reap to the flesh. The difference between the unregenerate person is he cannot reap to the spirit at all. The believer can reap to either, okay? And there will be consequences for it for the believer. There will be consequences that Paul says, if the church is a good one, get him out of your congregation. And then he says, why? That his flesh may be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of Christ Jesus. He's very clear that person is saved. It's 100% absolutely certain that he is saying that in that passage. And that person was doing, as he said, the worst possible thing. He says something that even the Gentiles wouldn't do. Okay? So you got to be careful when you look at verses like that and you get these people that say that you can lose your salvation. If that was true, as I was talking with my friends a few days ago, if that is true, every single person in here that is saved will be unsaved before they leave the door, okay? There's no doubt about it because we still got another half hour in this building, okay? And we're all going to have some thought that will separate us from our God. If anybody denies that, they've got a lot better head than I do, okay? But the fact is that whether it's 30 minutes or whether it's tomorrow, we will all do something that will offend a holy God and it will separate us from him. We cannot lose our salvation and that is not what Paul is referring to, okay? So, uh, they will re- uh, will of the flesh reap corruption. Whether a non-believer or a saved believer, the same holds true. If we fall back into sin, such as over-drinking, we will further corrupt our flesh, The liver will fail, the body will degrade, and then we will eventually die of our addiction. The same is true with any such sowing of the flesh. Pick your sin. Choose whichever one it is. Go do it, and you will suffer the affliction of that sin of the flesh if you continue in it. That's what Paul is saying right here, and it's what he said throughout all of his epistles. On the contrary, he who sows to the Spirit will will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. This is where the difference between a believer and a non-believer lies. The non-believer, let me turn my page here. The non-believer only will sow to the flesh because that person has never called on Christ and received eternal life. However, a saved believer can sow to the spirit. When they do, they will receive rewards for their efforts. The difference falls in the judgment of believers and non-believers. The saved believer in Christ will be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ. He makes that absolutely clear. He excludes zero Christians from that. When he says that you were saved and you were sealed by Jesus Christ, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, okay, the moment you believed you were sealed with the, the Spirit, that's it. 
your judgment has now gone from one of the second death to being before Jesus at the Bema Seat of Christ. And that is where your judgment will be, okay? Anybody else that doesn't will have the... Uh, it, it's kind of hard. I'm not going to go through it all right now, but you've got the rapture of the church, and then you've got the people that die during the millennium, and possibly the Old Testament saints will go with them. You know, it just... <coughs> Trust me on this, that there will be a first resurrection. It will be before the millennium. It is probably inclusive of the Old Testament saints, okay? I, you know, some people, and I'm not going to argue this one with anybody. Some people say the Old Testament saints will come up at the rapture because they were anticipating Christ, and Christ is the fulfillment of their hope. That's possible, okay? I'm not going to get dogmatic on that. If they don't go at the rapture with the believers in Christ after the cross, which is probably the case, probably the case, they will be raised at the first resurrection. After that, you've got the second resurrection where everybody will be judged, and those who did not believe in the Messiah at any point in redemptive history are going to be cast into the lake of fire, okay? Once again, I don't want to argue with anybody over what happens to the Old Testament saints. My guess is Charlie Garrett's personal guess is that they will not be taken up at the rapture. That is for people after the cross, and then they will be raised at the first resurrection. I think Daniel 12 is is clear enough to give us that uh, indication. But once again, I'm not going to argue with you, but, so don't send me an email and say, well, you're wrong about this or that. I'm giving you both options. I favor the, the latter one. Okay, so having said that, um, they will receive their rewards for their efforts. And as I said, the difference between believers and non-believers falls in the judgments that they will face, okay? The saved believer in Christ will be judged at the Bema Seat of Christ. This is detailed in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, do we have to? Yeah, we got them. Let me take you there. 1 Corinthians 3, we'll go there first, okay? And it's, I think, starts in verse 11. I could be wrong, but I think that's where it starts. 1 Corinthians, just so you can see this. This is for believers. Anybody that's been a believer in Jesus Christ, that is it. One, I'm in 1 Corinthians 13. It always helps to get back to chapter 3 when you're looking for chapter 3. Okay, and then it says, we'll start in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let... Each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if, here it is. If anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. He's speaking about believers here, okay? If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he, here it is, he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire, okay? Paul has already said that that guy that's doing the worst possible thing that he could write with his pen is saved. Get him out of the congregation because he's going to infect the congregation and people are going to end up not being saved because of people like that in the congregation. But if they're saved and they're doing that, get him out of the congregation. He will be saved. And this is what he will. It says right there, he will suffer loss, yet he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it will start again in verse 9. It says, therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear... All of us, all believers, any saved believer in Jesus Christ for all of the church history before the judgment seat of Christ, 
that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether bad or whether good or bad. Okay, and then he goes on in verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God. And I also trust that you are well known in your consciences. Okay, there is. That's what we are all going to face. And that's what I tried to stress at the beginning of this. And that's what we should continue to stress in our own walk with the Lord is what are we doing that will be of value to the Lord when He we stand before him because he is going to judge us and we are going to have a lot of stuff burned away. How much is dependent on us and how much reward we're going to get is dependent on us and is not dependent on anybody else. No bell curve, none of that stuff. Okay, so uh, those who are unsaved, this is why I was talking about later, will stand at the great white throne judgment recorded in Revelation 20. And that's when they will be judged and they will be cast into the lake of fire. Okay, life application. If you have called on Christ... Your eternal rewards will be based on what you do for Christ during this extremely short walk of life. Everybody think it's long? I'm telling you, I'm 56, and I, it was like yesterday I was in high school. That's how I feel about it. I mean, yesterday. I'm sitting here. I said, I'm not going to be on Facebook anymore after Wednesday. I'm done with it. I'm going to miss people that I grew up with that I see on Facebook all the time. But I'm just, I'm not going to be a part of it anymore. So if they want to get together, great. But I'm not going to do it on Facebook. Okay, so uh, it's an extremely short walk of life. Be sure to consider this wisely and work for those things which will spring up to great rewards. Don't squander your time, but seek out the Lord in his will every moment of your life. Okay, well, you've got time for one more at least. Go ahead, nine. Let us not be weary in doing good for all the proper, because at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Okay, this one says completely different. And let us not weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Lose heart and give up does not convey the same meaning. They, they may have intended it to, but it does not. Anyway, taken with the previous verse, the thought is more fully developed. For he who sows to his flesh will, will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. What becomes apparent is that sowing to the Spirit does not necessarily mean an immediate harvest. Instead, perseverance is required. This then indicates that the past few verses have, in fact, been referring to the doctrine of teachers as they sow. In other words, Paul is exhorting the teachers in this verse by saying, and let us not grow weary while doing good. A sound teacher will often face many overwhelming challenges. There's an abundant amount of work to be accomplished each week. I typed this at a time when I had no idea. I'll tell you that. There are demands on time. There are requests for donations from open hands at every side as well. Along with this come constant attacks against a sound teacher's doctrine. There is ingratitude for his efforts. There is using of him until he is spent. I can't believe I typed this. Unbelievable. And then he is cast off as newer targets are identified. I hate to say it, but what I said there is exactly the way it is. Exactly. I was thinking that. I was, I was vacuuming today. Now people will just, they'll use you up, they'll spit you out, and then they'll go find some other target. John Bunyan gives heartfelt words concerning such a person. John Bunyan says, His own people know no voice like his. He does not need to bribe and flatter and run after his people. He may have, he usually has, but few people, as people go in our day, and the better the preacher, sometimes the smaller the flock. 
It was so in our master's case. The multitude followed after the loaves, but they fled from the feeding doctrines till he first tasted that dejection and that sense of defeat, which so many of his best servants are fed on in this world. Still, as our Lord did not tune his pulpit to the taste of the loungers of Galilee, no more will a minister worth the name do anything else but press deeper and deeper into the truths, the depths of truth and life, till, as was the case with his master, his followers, though few, will be all the more worth having. Paul asks us, meaning those who are doing the sowing, to not weary in these good efforts. His words are not without personal experience. Instead, he was a forerunner of all those he now instructs who would face, the, face such a challenging duty. In 2 Corinthians 11, 22 through 29, he goes through a long list of his own trials to show that perseverance is needed in order to meet the challenges as they arise. And it is that harvest season which should be the goal. This is reflected in the words, For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The time of harvest will come, but awaiting it is bound to be beset with countless trials. This is reflected in his words of Romans chapter 5. Mary says these words. Therefore, Having been justified by faith, you know, and this should apply to everybody. We're talking about teaching here, but every one of us should be out there telling people about Jesus. I mean, that's our obligation and our responsibility. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that Tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. All right, and then I'll take you to another one that just came to mind. Take you to 2 Peter chapter 1. And he says, I'm going to start right up, right in, uh, I'll just start in the first verse because I'm going to take you down to verse 9. It follows what Paul just said. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith, that's us, with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power is given to us, all of us, given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have, a, have been given to us, he's speaking to all of us here, exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's what Paul's been speaking about in the last chapter, and just now we referred to it. So they're on the same page, this Paul and this Peter. But also for this very reason, here it is. This is what I love to press on people. He just told you we have all these good promises and we're, we've escaped the corruption of this world because of this, because this is already true in us. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue. To virtue, knowledge. That's what we're doing right now. We're, we're doing the knowledge part, okay? To knowledge, 
You're learning something right now. What are you going to do with it? Apply self-control. That's what I was talking about earlier. The Bible is the standard. You can read it and you, you can be the greatest scholar in the world and not have a heart for the Lord. But how do you get it? By applying what you now know. Virtue. Okay. To virtue, knowledge. To knowledge, self-control. To self-control, perseverance. In other words, I've got this self-control and now I'm going to persevere in it. I'm going to continue it. I'm not going to let myself fall to the wayside in this process and to perseverance godliness now you're growing to become like god that silver that was refined seven times over and the lord looks at it and he sees himself he doesn't see you anymore to godliness brotherly kindness because christ who is god showed us brotherly kindness by coming here and going to the cross on our behalf okay brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love for if these things, and they cannot come about if you don't apply them, and you've got to start with the word, and you've got to start in the word, but you've got to add these things. You've got to persevere. You've got to have virtue. You've got to have, you know, self, uh, what is it, self-control uh, and perseverance. All these things, you have to do it to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and they abound, think of yourself, if you're doing this, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're not barren, meaning that you're already in yourself sufficient, but more, you're fruitful. And if you're fruitful, that means you're bearing fruit for other people, okay? It's all about what you are going to do with your own life and your own conduct as you come towards the end of your life. What are you going to do with it before you stand before the Lord? Verse 9, for, and this is a perfect verse for eternal salvation right here. He just spoke about in verses two and three people that are saved, right? Us, and we've escaped the corruption of this world. For he who lacks these things, a person that's saved, that's who Peter is writing to, is short-sighted, even to blindness. He fails to do this list of things and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. The person never pursued the word of the Lord. He never got into the word of God. And what did he do? He walked away from the Lord and forgot that he was saved. And the Lord did not forget it. And he's the one that's got to stand before the Lord and face the judgment of the Lord without any rewards at all. Talking about rewards, look at this. Hey, we got a reward here today. Yeah, just put it down right there. Good, sir. We thank you very much. Thank you. Wow, wow, wow. See, we got some pizza tonight. Yeah. All right. You know it's going to be good. If you made it, it's going to be great. Say hi to that pretty wife of yours for us, okay? All right. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, man, I can smell that already. I almost gave it away because I, I said to Mabel, was it? I think I said to her, I went and got pizza for lunch today. I thought, oh. But I kind of recovered by saying it was for lunch. So there. Okay, so there we go. I did. I had lunch. I, I did. No, I didn't lie. I did have pizza for lunch. I just got pizza for you guys, too. So, But no pizza for you, buddy. That's all I can say. All right, hang on. We got to finish up our verse, and then we're going to get done. Okay. Um, uh, yeah, we're. Yeah, we'll just. Yeah, pizza nuts. Okay. In two Corinthians eleven twenty two through twenty nine. I've I've already read this, but we've lost our train of thought on pizza. So I'm going to read this paragraph, and then we'll have a life application and finish. He goes through a long list of his own trials. This is Paul to show that perseverance is needed. Just what Peter wrote about too. He wrote about it in Romans. He wrote about it uh, here. He's writing about these things, and he also has. Peter writing about it. I'm talking about the Lord. It has Peter writing about it, okay? And it is that harvest season which should be the goal. 
This is reflected in the words, for in due season, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. That's what Peter was talking about. You can lose heart or you can just completely walk away from the Lord. That's you. Do you want the reward or do you not? The time of harvest will come, but awaiting it is bound to be set with countless trials. Paul's words in Romans, Peter's words in 2 Peter 1, they say basically the same thing. All right, life application. Anyone who is a teacher of proper doctrine, whether an ordained minister or simply someone who loves sharing the word with others, can expect hardships and trials as he sows in sound doctrine. It is inevitable. But with perseverance, a harvest will eventually come. Don't tire in your efforts, but redouble them with each setback. The Lord will be pleased with your labors. All right, I'm going to go to the Lord in prayer, and then we're going to have some pizza. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word and to lift up the people that are having their troubles. Burke comes to mind right away, but there are lots of other people that are unstated at this time that certainly have trials. I know Becky has not gotten back to me with what has been afflicting her, but uh, hopefully the test came out okay today. And we have uh, just other things that are wearing people down, Lord, that we would ask that you would um, be with them and be a hand of help for them during their time of affliction and raise them out of it if it is your goodwill. And if it's not, at least let them understand why they're in the position they're in so that they can continue to demonstrate the faith that they need and to work in whatever way is possible for their condition to bring glory to you so that when they stand before you on that great day, just as we all will, that they will hear some good words of reward for what they have done. And Lord, we just thank you for this food that's uh, here. We ask that you bless it. We thank you for the online audience, and we pray that uh, they will have no problems going over to YouTube if they do attend on Facebook, because uh, it's something that just needs to happen at this point. And uh, Lord, we just pray that you'll make that transition for them easy. We pray these things that you'll be glorified and that they'll be built up in you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. The what? A lot of verses today. Oh, yeah.